It's Tuesday morning, June 14th. Jespo here with Infamous. And uh, the, it's just kind of like a, it's a rainy and, and gloomy and dark and stormy. She's a stormy one in our neck of the woods. Uh, the but, nap index But is spirits high are today. high. The nap index is very high. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking that today. I was thinking the, the minute that my eyes opened <laughs> and uh, me and the little dude, Wyatt, Oh. The older brother in the house. We had a sleepover last night because we wanted to. What we want to make sure that Wyatt's like having a good time, just like everybody else, as we introduce this new little human to the house. He's right, not feeling left out. Exactly. So, so Wyatt and Daddy, we have this cool little sleepover last night, and uh, he, his his eyes wake up. You're like, boom! He wakes up this morning, and, and then he rolls and he looks at me, and he says, "Did you know that the long neck dinosaur has two different scientific names?" And I was just like, ah. Uh, it's a little early. I didn't say that. That wasn't my response. I was like, really? I'm like, what are they? Tell me more. And then I walk in here and you're having like, what, what are you eating at 745 in the morning? It's a little Polynesian rice. A little Polynesian rice. No big deal. <laughs> a little purple rice. Yeah. Fabulous dinner selection. 745 yeah. in the morning. Not judging. Why would I? Who cares? No. So just feel I like it. There's a lot of energy. There's a lot of positivity today. And then by, by dumb accident yesterday. And we try not to sit and pump our own tires all the time, but everywhere, this is just a celebration. We're excited. We're grateful. Yesterday, on the fly, during the show, I did a live search of our podcast because I needed to find the date of an interview, the date of a conversation that I had with Garth Mullins. He's the host of the Crackdown Pod. Uh, okay. We were talking to Professor Ben Perrin yesterday, Stephen mm -hmm. Harper's former lawyer, who, was, who said he was all wrong about drug policy back in the day. And on the fly, as I'm talking to him, uh, one of our live real talkers one of the live chat uh contributors says says you got to talk to the host of the crackdown pod and i'm thinking i did but i want to give everybody the date i want to give everybody the reference mm -hmm. which by the way was december 10th of 2020 so you can go look up that interview if you want and i happened to look at Podbean, where our podcast is there and see that we were just a couple of thousand downloads away from three million just for the podcast not for youtube or anything like that right and so I, I thought, oh, my gosh. And they, so I check in this morning. There it is. Three million four thousand nine hundred and nine. We're almost at, at three million five thousand downloads of the podcast. Real talkers. Thank you to you. That's huge for us. We really appreciate it. Feels like a significant mile marker. Three million downloads of the podcast. It's beautiful. We're grateful. Appreciate everybody that checks out the show live or later, as we say, uh, this show comes to you uh, in large part because of the support of our presenting sponsor, the team at Bitcoin. Well, I was talking to my buddy yesterday, Chivers. I've mentioned him on the show before. And I go, how you doing? He goes, how you doing? And he goes, I'll tell you one thing. He goes, you better not be selling your Bitcoin right now because it's down, right? And so the Bitcoin, the maximalists are saying now's the time to buy. And, and a lot of people are saying, now I'm sold. I got out. Now's the time to sell. And then there's people like me, first of all, never giving you financial advice on Real Talk. But people like me go, I don't know. Do I buy? Do I sell? I have no idea. I want different perspectives. Talk to different people. One of them is Benny. I ask him direct questions. He gives me straight answers. You can find Benny and his team by following the Bitcoin Well link under the Sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. You all wrapped up with the Polynesian rice? Yeah, I'll take some Bitcoin if you want to get rid of yours. You just just shoot it your way, shuttle it your way? Yeah, a little. No, a lot of a lot of people like it's uh, I want to talk about this with Bruce Arthur. So Bruce is coming up uh, on the show in uh, the Toronto Star columnist. You know him. He's a con contributor to TSN. He's he's 
easily one of Canada's most prominent commentators, kind of when Bruce says something, people listen. And I'm sure he'll have a take on Bitcoin and not in particular on Bitcoin per se, Mm -hmm. but on the politicization of it. Right. Like you look at Pierre Poliev, who's and and I I keep hesitating. I should poll the audience on this. one. I'd like to ask real talkers, does it drive people nuts if I say things like, you know, the front runner or the guy to beat or the heir apparent in the conservative leadership race. I mean, I think it's okay. It does feel obvious, doesn't it? It does. If you believe the the membership sales, you know, he's his team claims to have sold over 300,000 memberships. Keep in mind, there were like 140,000 party memberships in play before. Mm -hmm. Patrick Brown, mayor of Brampton, says that his team sold about 150,000. Uh, and when asked for comment on how many memberships they've sold, the Jean Charest camp said, "What the reception? The connection's bad." They haven't said. They don't want to say. Now, of course, selling memberships doesn't necessarily translate into getting all of those new members out to vote for you or keeping them involved in the party after they vote for you to be leader. But chances are they probably will. Mm-hmm. And if you're doubling up on everybody else's membership sales, it's probably a good sign for your leadership campaign, though they're also not voting on this till September. 100%. You've still got to maintain that momentum. You've got to keep it all the way through the summer. Anyway, the point is, Pierre Polyev went on the record when Bitcoin was riding high uh-huh. and said, basically, this is a hedge against inflation. This is like your this is your protection against inflation. Right. And he sort of said that if he was he was fire the Bank of Canada, uh, the uh, governor of the Bank of Canada. And he said he'd make all these changes. He's going to he's it's his version like six years later of draining the swamp. That's what he says he's going to do with the elites in Canada, including banking and finance. And he would make Bitcoin legal tender like they've done in El Salvador. And now that Bitcoin's dumped about probably 40 percent. Of where it was at, you know, Bitcoin now, I think last I checked, I try not to check too often. I'm not one. Of, I've never been one of those. I don't like to check like bank balances, stocks, Bitcoin, anything. I don't like to check it on a daily basis. Account balance? You never check your account No, balance? I didn't say I never do. Oh, okay. but you know, there's people that like obsess over that kind of, they wake up and they like check their stocks. They wake up and they check their investments, check the markets. Yes. If that's your business, sure. I just find it stressful. But... If you had believed, if you were like a real sort of a, can I use the word disciple mm-hmm. of a politician like Pierre Polyev, who said to you that that Bitcoin is the protection against inflation as you're seeing inflation on the rise, as you're seeing all of the mainstream media outlets and your favorite independent shows talking about the impact <laughs> of rising inflation, maybe you would have done something drastic like invest a whole bunch into Bitcoin. I don't think you should have. I think you should have, you know bunch of things buried in a bunch of holes yeah because the way the world right now like you should have them you know yeah in the bank you should have some investments you should have some savings you should have some uh some e-commerce some bit bitcoin if sure but yeah keep a little everywhere because you never know what's gonna what's gonna happen you're right and but people are gonna say i mean as a matter of fact if you do believe that bitcoin has a bold future and and will be a significant element of how people save and trade and and all of the things then then when it's super low is the time to get into it Mm -hmm. but it's also a time that's politically probably a pretty big liability for a guy like pierre polyev 100 percent and because if you said i don't want to get screwed on inflation and then you went out and like remortgage this would be a terrible idea but remortgage your house and buy 400 grand of Bitcoin and then it drops 40% of its value in three months. You're looking at a political leader going WTF. It's very volatile. Right. And then what happens when the government, they're working on their own uh, cryptocurrency too, right? Yeah, well, Canada, and they want to have these digital currencies. Canada and the U.S. and people are wondering what's the future of the U.S. dollar. It's always Mm -hmm. been the standard. And 
the worst thing that anybody can do, probably, no offense to you, it's mostly a shot at me, is listen to us wax <laughs> yeah. about the future of finance and You can tell by this markets. conversation. We, uh, I haven't even checked in on that. How, are, how are our, uh, we don't ever call it the chatterbox. How is the chatterbox <laughs> doing this morning? Everybody doing all right this morning? It's always great to have those uh, great friends of the show joining us live every morning and, and chiming in on that. Uh, it's where we hear from people on on some of the uh, the ways that they're interacting with the show and, and of course, providing feedback in real time. Yesterday was really remarkable, that conversation conversation with with Professor Perrin, with Ben Perrin, uh, former criminal justice advisor to Canada's prime minister, Stephen Harper at the time. And then Ben just basically did a total turnaround in his perspective on drug policy and what works and criminal justice and who should be in jail. And I just wanted to mention that interview again. It was like my parents are amazing. They don't miss a minute of this show. Bruce and Catherine down in Calgary, thinking of them and everybody else down in Calgary right now, a local state of emergency declared the city. Yeah. I don't want to say underwater. That's being dramatic, but there's a ton of rain down in Calgary right now. The rivers are running high, they say. Yeah, I think the state of emergency, everyone freaks out, but I think the mayor's just trying to open up some resources to totally. deal with it. Yeah, totally. But anytime you hear, especially in, it feels like in Calgary or, or southern and central Alberta that's seen... Like it wasn't too long. I guess it's coming up on like 10 what's years up ago. With this? 2013, but those floods, you remember, we just, obviously. We can't handle rain out here. Just it's hammered like, the city. Yeah. Somebody at my son's soccer game last night says to me, they go, how about that rain down in Calgary? Because we were seeing some pretty ominous clouds last mm-hmm. night, too. And then, and then the guy, he's a city planner, he says to me, it kind of makes a bit of an argument, doesn't it, for building infrastructure and climate resiliency, right? And I 100%. Said, well, it's going to yes. get people talking about it for sure. Definitely. Anyway, my mom calls me like right after the show yesterday. And uh, she and my dad were checking out, and they go, just how about that Ben Perrin? And then back-to-back with Charles Adler just good, chiming yeah. in. A really good show that had a lot of people talking. Ben Perrin starts going off on 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 the sort of what would Jesus do angle for religious politicians. And I, we got some great feedback from Real Talkers. I loved this one. Let me find it before we get to Mubin Shake. Um, I kind of like this. This is like a rainy day start to the show, right? Just to <laughs> sort of ease into it. But we got some great feedback from Real Talkers uh, like this one who heard yesterday Ben Perrin. Uh, this is uh, Insider Easeback on Twitter. Great handle. Says, Jespo, I'm not a fan of organized religion in the slightest because I feel like it's been perverted and weaponized. But damn, your first guest today talking about Ben Perrin about decriminalizing drug use. Rob effing O, he threw down the ultimate gauntlet, mad respect. And I thought that was great feedback. Uh, ben also talked about how Star Trek factors into his perspective on criminal justice and brings it together in under two minutes. I thought he did a good job. There's a great clip up on our Twitter of that, yeah. Yeah, really good. All right, we're going to get to news of the day in just a second. First, we told you about how much it means to us when we hear from real talkers like Michael. Michael sent us an email uh, to talk at ryanjesperson.com just the other day. He says, headed to Kelowna to the, he, he, by the way, emailed us, I'm assuming from like the departures gate or maybe in line to go through security. <laughs> so his email says, heading to Kelowna with the family. Uh, he says, we booked our airport parking with your promo code realtalk at jetsetparking.com. Uh, he said, without it was $60 with the promo code. It was 35. He says, 
that's a huge difference. I didn't expect it to save so much. And then he gives us the fist pound emoji. So Michael, 25 bucks stays in your pocket just because you used the promo code REALTALK at jetsetparking.com. Thanks for using the code. Thanks for letting us know that you did. You can book your airport parking out of Edmonton's International Airport at jetsetparking.com. Give yourself 24 hours advance notice. You can book all the way through till the end of 2022, as mentioned, using the promo code uh, Real Talk, it gets you parking for $7 a day at the airport. Absolutely fantastic stuff. You're not going to find a better deal for airport parking. Friesen Brothers wants to remind you that they've always got events going on. They care about you and your wellness, whether it's nutritional information, whether it's community celebrations, a celebration of music out of their Fort Saskatchewan store this month. You can find all the details on how they're giving back to their community at Friesen.com. You can also browse their flyer online. And don't forget, I'm giving you a couple weeks advance notice right now. The first of the month, every month at Friesen Brothers, $75 or more in grocery purchases gets you 15% off for those big family shops well who cares who it is even if you're just shopping for yourself 15% off that's a big deal 16 locations Friesen Brothers is Alberta grown and Alberta owned so is our good friends at Park Power you know they're family owned they're a small business in the big business of utilities delivery and it impacts how they approach what they do you can find out online how comparing rates and then bundling utilities can save you a ton of dough. Uh, we heard from Jillian. I saw in the live chat yesterday. People are going to be like, he's really keeping an eye on this story. But she said in the live chat, she finally signed up for Park Power. She says, I don't know what took so long. And Somebody says, well, did you save money? I saw her reply yesterday. She says, especially in bundling the service. She says, I didn't realize how gouged I was getting from the previous provider when it came to the admin fees. Park Power across the board is going to cost you less. Plus, they give back to charities in their community. You can use the promo code 2022-REALTALK to sign up at parkpower.ca. Save $70 off your first bill. Well, this is a wild story out of Idaho. Did you see this on Saturday? Law enforcement pulling over a, a U-Haul. Uh, our next guest can give us some of the details here. This this is just crazy. More than 30 people, 30 men uh, known to be white nationalists, white supremacists, a group known as Patriot Front, arrested uh, near an Idaho Pride event. They're telling investigators they were intent on disrupting it. Our next guest keeps an eye on developments like this. Mabin Sheikh is a de-radicalized former extremist and also formerly an undercover operative for CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, and of course, the RCMP. You can follow him on Twitter at Mr. Mabin Sheikh, where you can see his work. He teaches public safety at Seneca College, and he works in counter-extremism to this day with the group Parents for Peace. It's always an honor to have you on the show here, my friend. Thanks for making time for us. How have you been? Thanks for having me again, Ryan. Yeah. And this... also my protein posts. Don't forget my food picks. Oh, yeah. Your food picks, too. <laughs> hey, hey, man, you, you approach your social media like my favorite follows do, and you're among them. And that's people that give us little glimpses into all the different elements of your life. We get to see what makes you tick. Yeah. Hey, protein. I'm, yeah, <laughs> there you go. I want to ask you, I will ask you about your story, uh, because I think it's important to sort of establish uh, your credibility here and help people understand how you analyze and how you assess news stories like this one out of Idaho. You're, you're, you're on a very short list of, of people who were radicalized at a young age, people who saw the light, so to speak, 
who saved their own lives and got out and then have worked with law enforcement, academics and other experts to try to make the world a, a safer place. It's been a remarkable journey for you. Yeah, that's I uh, like the way you put that. It's um, yeah, it has been a remarkable journey. How did you get drawn in? I mean, how do how do people get drawn in? I mean, whether we're talking about a group, uh, a white nationalist group like Patriot Front, whether we're talking about some of the groups that, that we've seen here in Canada, around the world, whether we're talking about Islamic extremists, uh, is there a common thread or a common theme with regards to how these young people seems to me to be typically young men, but how these young people are are recruited and converted, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, uh, if we look at radicalization just as a human problem, as a it's, it's really a human psychological process, and and it's that process whereby people become increasingly extreme in their views. That's basically the basic definition of radicalization. But not all radicalization is bad, right? I mean, we've uh, many uh, civil rights heroes in the U.S. or even in Canada or others uh, had had radical views. I mean, by the you know relative to the the views of the society at the time. Uh, if I could just nerd out for a second, I mean, the the origins of it actually comes from when the UK or the, you know, Britain was moving away from an aristocratic system to a more democratic system of um, elected representatives, because it was a complete and sudden shift from its foundations, this was considered radical. So this is where radical comes from. Radicalization is this idea that people become more extreme in their views. And like I said, that that's by itself in and of itself is not, is not illegal. It's not bad. It's not, it's actually in some cases it's good. But it's just when it becomes uh, a radicalization into extremism or violent extremism. So once again, basically, radicalization is that process. Extremism is that end state where you believe that taking hostile action against you know a predetermined or a selected outgroup is necessary for your you know meaningful belonging in an in-group. That's extremism. And when you believe that taking violent action against those people, et cetera, et cetera, that's violent extremism. So it's it's very easy for people to fall down that rabbit hole or into that rabbit hole because, you know, when you have this interplay between uh, ideology and grievances, so there's a great quote. It says, ideology without grievances doesn't resonate. It doesn't appeal to the mind. And grievances without ideology are not acted upon. Okay, so there is this interplay between those two, which you find as a common ingredient across all extremist groups. The Southern Poverty Law Center describes Patriot Front, this group that was arrested uh, near Idaho's Pride event, uh, as a white nationalist hate group. It formed after after that deadly Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, back in 2017. Um, Of the group, Southern Poverty Law Center says they focus on theatrical rhetoric and activism that can easily be distributed as propaganda for chapters across the country. The group does have a manifesto that calls for the formation of a white ethnostate in the United States. You You can see here more than 30 of them arrested by law enforcement. They're wearing, as you can see, uh, riot gear uh, coming from as as far away as Arkansas, Virginia, Wyoming, Illinois, Colorado, Utah, Texas. They came from across the United States uh, wearing Reclaim America on the back of some of their shirts. They were 
carrying riot gear, smoke grenades, shin guards, shields. They had the arm patches and logos uh, associating them with this group. When does this become, when does this stop being a group of people gathering to air and share their grievances? And when does it start uh, becoming something that should catch the attention of law enforcement, concern the public, and potentially threaten public safety? Yeah, that's good. Good question, because this um, the idea or, you know, the the sense that they did face or they were a public safety threat is was very real. What they wanted to do, um, you go in and disrupt the pride parade. And I just love the irony of a bunch of guys jammed up in the back of a U-Haul. You know, this they they came to do this, you know, specific thing. They wanted to disrupt, uh, you know, cause just issues, uh, aggravate in sight and like the police said that well we'd we'd rather arrest these guys on these charges than have to deal with you know whatever aftermath they would have left and so you know it would have got them a lot of coverage of course which would have been great for their own purposes i mean propaganda but as well as the idea that hey look we're doing something it shows other you know uh white nationalist groups hey these are the guys that are organized these are the guys that are actually putting on the show uh, for the rest of America to see. Um, so, you know, as soon as it starts going into um, targeting specific groups, you know, on their days of celebration, whatever it is, then then you know you've gone too far because you do live in the U.S. The U.S. is all about freedom in Canada as well. I mean, uh, people, you know, you may not subscribe to their respective beliefs, but everybody has a freedom to celebrate, you know, in their way, as long as they're not burning stuff down and blowing stuff up. Um, And so once you start targeting groups like that, then you're an extremist, right? Most people don't do that. Most people just stay home or don't look or change the channel. But when you, you know, suit up and get into the back of a U-Haul with a bunch of other men, you know, intent on disrupting events like this, that it becomes a public safety threat very clearly. The Seattle Times is uh, reporting just late last night into this morning that the, the Coeur d'Alene Police Department has confirmed that members of police officers uh, that were involved in making those arrests have been uh, recipients of death threats. They say that they've got almost 150 phone calls from as far away as Norway. They said some people have been uh, directly tying themselves to the events in Idaho over the weekend. They said other people just seem to be affiliating themselves with the more general cause. And, and trying to cause a ruckus and, and trying to disturb, obviously, the mindset, I think, probably, and the sense of security of law enforcement that's been working on this. Have you seen, like, on North American soil in particular, a change or an increase in extremism over the past number of years? I mean, we, we've got these January 6th committee oh, yeah. hearings going on right now. We're just talking to Charles Adler about that just yesterday. As mentioned, this Patriot Front group formed after Charlottesville. Donald Trump's no longer holding office. I, I don't think it's it's fair or accurate or reasonable to pin everything on the former president of the U.S., but I will say he dramatically altered the state of discourse, the tone of discourse, the decorum out of the Oval Office. He empowered a lot of people that are problematic. Uh, what are you seeing, including to present day? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I, um, I would put. I would put most of it at the foot of Trump. I mean, he, uh, the, you know, he was given uh, such a platform and megaphone to spread his poisonous uh, rhetoric. And um, and it basically told people that being an a-hole is OK. Right. You can celebrate it. You can be happy about it. 
Um, because look, I mean, uh, you know, they, they made him president, right? So, uh, so if you look at, if you track what happened since then, you see this, um, you do see this upward trajectory of these sorts of groups because now they feel disenfranchised that their guy was in the office. Um, their guy was taken out of the office, meaning, you know, stolen election. And so this idea that they had something and they lost it and now it's time to reclaim it and regain it. This is what animates and drives a lot of these people. Now, we, we have it in Canada as well. In, in Western Europe, uh, you're seeing the exact same kind of rhetoric, the same kinds of group formations, the same kinds of even uh, attack plots. Uh, there have been a lot of far right attacks, um, you know, steadily increasing. And each one is kind of piggy, not piggybacking, but uh, somewhat inspired by the by the other. You know, so if you look at, for example, uh, the attacks that happened in Norway, um, you know, that was used as a uh, that was used as a rallying cry for many, uh, you know, subsequent attackers in Quebec. When we had the mosque massacre, uh, this guy was driven by Trump rhetoric. I mean, he was he was wearing a MAGA hat. He was a MAGA Canadian MAGA wannabe. I don't know what we call those people now. Um, and then, you know, when you had uh, the the killings in New Zealand, I mean, he was partially inspired by not just the Quebec mosque attack, but also the Norway attack. So this this kind of tentacling of, you know, an attack happens here and, it be, and it's spread over there, that explains why you're getting people from Norway seemingly or other places calling into Idaho, because these are all people part of that ecosystem. And who knows what could have happened? I mean, it's possible that an attack, an outright attack could have happened at the Pride Parade and then it would have been taken as a, an inspiration for somebody else to do it somewhere else. So it's it's a you know it's a it's an international issue now. It's a transnational ideological network, um, and and so it's starting to mirror what we've been seeing with the so-called jihadists, hmm. right? Some people over there, some people over there. They all have the same views, thoughts. They share tactics. They share plans, plots, and you know it's it's one. You know, it's just one big ecosystem in which they're all operating. Yeah, I, I'm curious to they they uh, officials like organizers with different. There was like the North Idaho Pride Festival. There are a number of different Pride Festivals in Idaho, and and by all accounts, it sounds like they shattered attendance records over the weekend. They said that they were uh, some of the strongest showings for for Pride uh, in Idaho ever. And I would imagine that some of that can probably be attributed to the fact that people showed up to show their support after these arrests, right, to show a solidarity, um, so to speak, maybe turn, turned out and, and attended and, and uh, maybe brought their families along when otherwise maybe they would have stayed home. When it comes to pushback and public messaging and, and what the public can do, you've seen both sides of this. You can understand both mentalities. Does the public hold a certain power? With regards to pushing back here, with regards to refusing to be intimidated, or, or am I going down a wrong avenue? Well, absolutely. I mean, this is what we've been, you know, telling people uh, after, uh, you know, terrorist attacks, like especially ISIS terrorist attacks were happening in, in European uh, capitals and major European cities. It was all about resiliency, right? Public resiliency, knowing that an attack probably is going to happen at some point somewhere. It's just how do you respond to it? Are you going to let it just completely dictate your life and you're just never going to go out again? Or are you going to completely curtail the way in which you, you know, uh, engage with other members of the public, whatnot? So I, I think, you know, people are 
uh, number one, people are, I think, more switched on about being resilient and realizing that, look, I mean, there are bad people out there looking to do bad things all the time. At every given moment, that's what they fixate on. And we and and unfortunately, people like me, it's people like me who, uh, you know, have to be we're always in that world looking at, you know, where is the next attack coming from and so on and so forth. But I don't let it control my life. I don't, you know, I, I still go out. I still, I don't change much of what I do. So that's that's the, the main thing, that public uh, support and public resiliency is a very, very important, you know, concept. And, but I think the other thing is that it's the first summer, actually, you know, post-COVID, quote unquote, right? And so I think a lot of people are going to be, uh, they just want to get out, want to have fun, um, you know, enjoy, you know, what, what they remember of a, a pre-COVID time. And unfortunately, this is also going to be taken up by those people who have been festering and kind of incubating in hatred and whatever else during those COVID isolation years. And it's possible that we're going to start seeing, you know, their, um, their consequences, right. Or their, their end result of being in that, in that cocoon of, of hatred online, just going into these forums just incubating in that hatred and just waiting for a reason to manifest that hatred. So, I mean, it's, it's going to go both ways this summer, I think. That's an inch. I'm, I'm going to let that sort of sit with me all day. Uh, what you just said, uh, man, it just, it reiterates to me, I'm going to say something really obvious here, but the, the importance and the heaviness of the job uh, you've done this job before. I mean, you've inserted yourself. Like, I guess we could probably sit here for like three hours and hear you tell stories of how you, you worked as an undercover counterterrorism operative for Canadian and international intelligence services. Like there's probably stories, obviously you can't tell us, uh, but also the people that are monitoring these chats and infiltrating these sources of information. I think not just with terrorism, you know, my heart's heavy when I hear of arrests that are made, you know, pe people that are, are trading or producing child pornography or people that are involved in the high level drug trade, bringing in millions of dollars, you know, of drugs internationally. And you look at this law enforcement and the and the work that they do to intercept this type of stuff. And it really is remarkable. Do you have confidence? I mean, and this is not to say that there is never an attack or, or there's never a crime committed or there's never violence. Um, but relatively speaking, do you have confidence in in Canada's and in international law enforcement to be able to adequately understand and monitor and, and ultimately police uh, these extremists around the world? I mean, how, how would you assess their capabilities and are they up to speed? Yeah, it depends on which country, of course, and what where the threats are coming from. Um, you remember that the you know the adversary just needs to be just needs to get it right one time, right? And then we're reading about an attack that has happened. The authorities got to get it right every single time, and that's just not possible. And you're going to get an attack where it's just it's inevitable. Um, but if you look at how many plots have been foiled, I mean, depending on where you're where you're looking, like in the UK, for example, they they were uh, you know uh, um, preventing uh, plots like every month, like there would have been. If those plots had gone forward, yeah, I mean, the UK would have been dealing with extremist attacks like yeah, definitely every three weeks. Um, you know, so in the US now you're dealing with mass shootings almost every three days. Uh, I don't think they're going to there's nothing that can be done about that unless there's meaningful uh, gun control legislation in the US. They're just and then you can hear the Republicans, some of the Republicans talk about that saying, look, this is just a, this is the price we pay for the free society we live in. But Canada, unfortunately, we've had some cases, you know, some incidents that have that have happened that have gone through. Right. The Quebec mosque attack was the big one. 
Um, you know, the uh, so, uh, you know, you had this one elderly Muslim gentleman outside a mosque uh, in Toronto. You know, he had his throat slit by a neo-Nazi uh, Satanist. And yes, they exist. The Order of the Nine Angels. So we have a lot of, you know, some sick people uh, in our midst, unfortunately. But we do have a really good um, security apparatus. I mean, uh, infiltrate, infiltrate, infiltrate. I'm a big believer in that, of course. And and all these dummies that are out there getting into the backs of U-Haul vans and whatever else, you can be sure that there is somebody feeding information to the government. You can be, you can set your clock to it because that's how it operates. You cannot have that many people keep a secret for that long. It just can't. Now, in this case, they, they're reporting that a neighbor saw or somebody in the public saw all these guys, you know, piling into the back of a van and they looked like they were up to no good. See something, say something. I mean, it applies to us, too. I mean, if it if it doesn't look right, it probably isn't right. And I'm not just talking about like because you, you don't want false positives either. People just being normal, let's say a Muslim family or something and saying, oh, my God, I think it's Al Qaeda. No, but the reality is, is that at least from the intelligence services and police services side, they are going to use uh, infiltration um, means to find out you know what's going on. And that's and that's how you prosecute these people. And that's that's just the way it has to get done. And, and it will get done that way. And, uh, you know, last point is that uh, don't think that, you know, they're not watching or whatever. If you're involved in these sorts of things and that ecosystem and those kind of people, uh, chances are they're they're going to see what you're putting out there. Mubin Sheikh is our guest. Let me ask you, you brought up uh, just the the epidemic in the United States. I mean, just the the horrific reality that you know I, I saw it it slapped me in the face i think it was about a week ago or something and somebody tweeted there have been 18 i think it was 18 there have been 18 mass shootings in the u.s since uvalde texas and we don't even hear you know mass shooting is like five people in a workplace you're like oh yeah what was that was that the one in tennessee or was that the one in pennsylvania i don't yeah. remember was that the you know it, it's just like it's on a whole other level um with regards to your 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 expertise your perspective typically uh, and I can't say this across the board, obviously, and please correct me, please clarify. But typically, these mass shooters tend to be men. They typically tend to be white. They typically tend to be younger. Uh, there, there are these common threads, right? History, some, sometimes, oftentimes of mental illness, able to procure their firearms legally and easily. I mean, there's kind of this common thread. When it comes to law enforcement, when it comes to getting ahead of these attacks, which, like you said, sometimes somebody's got to be right just once to be able to pull something off. You can't stop everything. Um, but do these need to be approached from, from a, an infiltration perspective, from a law enforcement perspective, the same as, I mean, it, if it's not terrorism, what is it? It's inflicting terror to further an ideology, to express a certain feeling, to, 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 to uh, manifest some angst, whatever it is, it's terror leveraged. Um, is this need to be managed in the same way? Is this a completely different animal from law enforcement or intelligence standpoint? Mass shootings, you mean? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a completely different animal because it's it's akin to the lone actor terrorist, right? right. Previously called the lone wolf, and I mean the whole idea was that like, how do you if this person is not online, if they're not you know blabbing, uh, how are you gonna how are you gonna find them? And so it's it's what the U.S. is facing in the mass shooting crisis is. Um, people who have access access to these weapons, right? I mean, it's uh, there's a reason why it's hard to let off, you know, explosive devices and things like that. Those are harder to procure. You need a, a much higher level of knowledge to, you know, put make a bomb, put it together, make it a functioning bomb. What it, what you, all you need to learn? It's a basic motor skill to press a trigger. 
uh, doesn't require much, right? And so the ease at which somebody who's having whatever problems, whether they're ideologically driven or they have some mental issues, uh, the the fact of availability of that weapon that can you know create such mass death uh, is is the is the factor that stands out here. There's really I think the the only way I think is um, is for is for you know parents and family members to see what's going on in their homes with their kids or their relatives or whatever else to take a proactive safe approach to the storage and handling of firearms people don't realize it's not just these uh, attacks that are happening but accidental discharges uh, if you look at how many uh, toddlers have killed other people because of accidentally discharging that firearm so it's not just mass shootings right it's all these other cases it's horrible when i read these i get it's so sad when i read some of these stories where Mother takes kid to a wall, you know, Walmart uh, for to shop, to go shopping and leaves the kids in the car with the purse and the gun is in the purse. And then, oh, guess what? One of the kids finds it, shoots the other kid in the head. And that's what the that's what the parent gets to to find when they come back to the car. You know, it's it's little things like that. Or Mubin, just, they, they've, it, it's this crazy. year, it's this year is the first year that firearms are the leading cause of death of children in the United States. Yeah. Firearms. Yeah. Well, when you have a country that has more firearms than you have people, the likelihood of there being a firearms related accident is very, very high. And that's what you're seeing now. Right. Not just accidents, but now, of course, with deranged, you know, murderers who who specifically target children. And, and you know, like um, the U.S. has over 350 million people. You're going to have a handful of crazies, at least. I mean, like real crazies, meaning like people who are going to deliberately murder children, right? Not to mention all the other crazies that are just, you know, uh, deliberately murdering adults, right? So let me ask you this in closing, and uh, I'm not sure why I feel like I want to be careful here, but, but I'm not implying that that everybody that was involved in this, I, I am, I'm certainly not implying that everybody involved in the Freedom Convoy and the auto occupation were terrorists or were intent on claiming human lives or anything. I'm not saying that. Uh, but there was an affiliated border blockade at Coots where police seized a, a massive cache of weapons and charges were laid and people were charged following the Ottawa occupation. And, and it was certainly one of the more prominent uh, acts of civil disobedience, organized civil disobedience in Canada, at least in recent memory. Uh, one of the organizers, Pat King, is now facing perjury and obstruction of justice charges on top of the other charges he was facing, uh, mischief and uh, and other ones. I mean, some pretty serious charges, uh, intimidation, obstructing police, disobeying a court order. His lawyer says that he's he's defeated, so to speak. They say he's beat down. His supporters do after uh, sitting in jail for 113 days now after being arrested. Uh, I want to keep the question general for you, Mubin, with your area of expertise, as you were watching this all unfold in Ottawa and as you've watched proceedings since the story of Tamara Litch, the story of, of others that have been affiliated with this, Randy Hillier, the Ontario member of provincial parliament. Uh, where's your head at with regards to the whole Ottawa occupation, the Freedom Convoy and that kind of right wing conservative movement in Canada? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's true. Of course, it was not, uh, you know, it wasn't violent, uh, relatively speaking. I mean, violent, obviously, I'm talking about, uh, of course, there were acts of violence, intimidation, racism, you know, uh, honking horn, truck horns all day, every day. 
Um, but it was, it's obviously a, whoops. Um, it's obviously a um, manifestation of, of angst and, um, you know, distress that people are feeling in the political situation or whatever. Uh, it's good that uh, we, you know, we dealt with some people. I think, you know, the courts were a little too soft uh, when it came to people like uh, Tamara Lich, for example, who was uh, uh, one of the, of course, uh, organizers of the rally. And those are the people who should have been punished um, uh, properly. But it, you're just seeing the latest manifestation of it come and go. Let's see what's happening uh, on July 1st. There's already there are already claims for people to say, all right, let's go. Let's go back. You know, it's not minus, you know, 45 outside. Um, it's going to be nice and sunny and this and that. So let's go. So let's see what happens on July 1st. But the but the larger context is this, is that, yes, we are. It's this it's part of the same ecosystem. These people who were involved in the convoy are hand in glove with the same mentality in the U.S. They tried to do this. They tried to do the same thing in the U.S., meaning drive their trucks into D.C. and into other places. It didn't work out so well, but. Uh, they had seen the American you know, contingent had seen what the Canadian contingent had done. And it's also no accident that you see Trump flags and other flags. Don't tread on me. Uh, yes, in one case, a swastika flag. But these are all flags that you find at Trump rallies as well. And so it, it's that mentality again. It's that same mentality that we're talking about. That's been that's allowed this, um, you know, this blowhard attitude to be given a platform and for people to think that they're valid and they're legitimate in their in their grievances and they're not at the end of the day they're not i am always so grateful for your perspective on this movie nobody has uh i mean really very few people that we ever have a chance to talk to have walked the miles in the shoes that you have uh and uh it gives you a depth of understanding uh, that very few can rival uh thanks so much for sharing your expertise and your perspective with us we're richer having heard it we appreciate it my pleasure, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you Cheers. can follow Mubin on Twitter at Mr. Mubin Sheikh, uh, now teaching public safety at Seneca College and counter extremism, working with the group Parents for Peace. Uh, Bruce Arthur coming up in just a moment, easily one of Canada's most prominent columnists. I want to ask him about this live golf tour, the Saudi back golf tour, and then we'll talk some uh, federal politics as well. The show goes on every day because we have amazing support from sponsors like Kubi Energy. Uh, Kubi Energy, by the way, going to be out at the Real Talk Golf Classic coming up next Thursday, June 23rd at the Ranch. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very excited. Jake and Adam have their team registered. Uh, good to see them out there. You can get a free solar quote today by visiting kubienergy.ca. You might go, yeah, but I'm one of those real talkers that listens in from Sycamus or Moose Jaw. Uh, we say no problem. Kubi Energy does installations, commercial, residential, industrial, agricultural across Western Canada. They've got a constantly growing team of Tesla certified installers, their install team. Nobody does a cleaner job. You can see the evidence on their Instagram at Kubi Energy. And of course, you know that you're working with uh, apprentices and journeymen, those that are ticketed up on the roof. So the job is done right the first time. Your free quote, solar quote today at kubienergy.ca. We've been telling you about Infinity Healthcare. This is a group that's proudly family-owned, locally owned right here in Alberta. They're always hiring healthcare aides. They're looking for a licensed practical nurse and LPN right now, customer care navigators, healthcare ambassadors. If you're looking for a new career and you like to help people, you like to help people find solutions when it comes to their home care, you know that people don't care about anybody more than they do their inner circle, their parents, their aunts, their uncles, their kids, people that need maybe some supervision, some companionship. 
Maybe they just need care on a daily basis, a weekly basis, whatever. Infinity customizes it based on what your family needs. You can learn more about their personality matching service today at infinity-8.ca. And we wanted to remind you that if you're looking to bring your outdoor space to life this summer and you're in central or northern Alberta, Eden Landscaping needs to be your first call. They've been bringing outdoor spaces to life for more than 20 years. A custom landscape builder that takes you from design through to completion. You're not subcontracting out. You're not losing track of who you're dealing with. You can learn about their philosophy. They talk about how exceptional landscapes come through thoughtful, flowing visions. And give them a contact today at landscapeedmonton.ca. That's Eden Landscaping. Also at the golf tournament, by the way. Yeah. I like that. I wonder if Mike will be sort of like checking out the fairways, checking out the greens. They need some edging assessing done here. Their, <laughs> assessing their turf care. All right, let's get to this. Speaking of golf, uh, I probably don't need to tell you, even if you're just a casual watcher of the game, that there's been a big disruption when it comes to professional golf. The Saudi-backed Live Tour has recruited some of golf's biggest names with big bags of cash it means that stars like phil lefty mickelson who reportedly took 200 million from the live tour uh, of course you've got other high profile golfers dustin johnson formerly the world number one reportedly 150 million to go play on that saudi backed tour well they're currently suspended from pga competition that doesn't include the majors and so it means that stars like phil mickelson are at the U.S. Open, a PGA-affiliated event in Boston this weekend, facing some tough questions about doing business with the Saudis, like this one from golf reporter Christine Brennan. Check this out. Phil, Christine Brennan. Hi there. Uh, as uh, you know, you've been criticized by many people, as you referred to. Uh, New York Post, Brian Wacker, uh, reported that the 9-11 families sent you and others a letter uh, alluding, of course, to Osama bin Laden and the 15 of 19 hijackers that the Saudis, uh, of course, sent, and um, that they say now you are a partner with them and you appear to be pleased in your business with them. Terry Strada is the person, of course, who wrote this letter, and her husband got on the, the plane in Boston that flew into the, uh, into the World Trade Center. Um, and they say the deaths of your fellow Americans. No, I've read all that. Is there okay. a question in there? Yes, there is. Um, how do you explain to them, not to us, but to them, what you've decided to do? I would say to um, the Strata family, I would say to everyone that um, has lost loved ones, lost friends in 9-11, that I have deep deep empathy for them. Um, I, I can't emphasize that enough. I, I um, have the deepest of th sympathy and empathy for them. That's Phil Mickelson facing questions yesterday as uh, competitors prepare to tee off Thursday uh, near Boston at the U.S. Open. Bruce Arthur, no doubt, taking a look at this story. Bigger picture, of course, as a contributor to TSN, TSN Radio, and a prominent columnist, senior columnist for the Toronto Star, named the 2012 Sports Writer of the Year. Joining us from his cottage this morning, it sounds like, which we appreciate. And I shouldn't say this out loud, but it appears as though your signal is coming through crystal clear. So welcome and thanks for making time for us. 
Let's hope, Brian. Yeah. Uh, Phil Mickelson, obviously bristles there, right? He, uh, he, he goes, yeah, yeah, I've read all that. Is there a question in there somewhere uh, as he's kind of taking punches? But I guess that comes with the territory. 200 million bucks to join the Live Tour. How are you wrapping your mind around all this? It's interesting because the sports has largely been kind of concentrated in Europe and North America. Uh, mostly that's economic. So that's where the IOC, for example, the International Olympic Committee is based out of Europe and has been largely European before expanding globally. FIFA is still based in Europe. The major sports leagues uh, in the world are either in Europe or in North America, and golf was part of that. And what's happened here with the Saudis is not only that they're trying to start their own golf league, because that's happened. Different countries have tried to do different things when it comes to sports. The amount of money that they are throwing at this is extraordinary. Tiger Woods is the all-time PGA Tour golf winning, like he's won more money than anybody else. And I think it's about $120 million. Hmm. And Phil Mickelson will make more than that for playing a a glorified exhibition uh, on a Saudi tour, which allows him more balance with his family right? Like he, he doesn't, or whatever he wants to do, he can go and gamble more money away if he wants to, because that's a big problem for Phil. The Saudis have, one of the things about Western culture and the current situation in the world is that it's actually easy to buy your way into Western culture in a lot of ways. Look at how London was bought by Russian oligarchs and huge swaths in terms of real estate. Look at how capital flows into North America in a number of different ways, including politics. And with sports, what the Saudis have decided to do is just buy probably the most buyable athletes on earth. Like we've seen the WWE has gone to Saudi Arabia. We've seen that there's an F1 race in Saudi Arabia. Um, But Saudi Arabia right now is trying to take a bite out of a major sport in North America and take their athletes away. So you've got Dustin Johnson, Bryson DeChambeau, uh, Phil Mickelson, Sergio Garcia, a lot of has-beens beyond that. Yeah. Um, but the amount of money is so significant that it's unclear what the PGA can do about this. Because if you're talking about it in a market sense, the market is now global and it's irrationally global because the amount of money that the Saudis are going to spend on what looks like a fairly cockamamie golf tour is so massive that it will distort everything about golf. And so what you've got is a civil war in a sport that was always fairly amoral. They don't usually care where the money comes from. And now it's coming from one of the more odious regimes on earth and in a very sports washing specific way. And that's where you get, you're going to get a lot more of what you saw there with Phil. You're going to get a lot of hard questions and you're going to get a lot of pushback from the people taking the money. Well, yeah. And I'm curious, I want to ask you about what the fans are going to do. If you think short and long term on this one, I mean, this is kind of the first time really that some of these golfers are going to be in front of a gallery. Who knows what Boston sports fans will be like. I'm sure there will be the decorum of golf, Mm -hmm. but let's talk about what the tour is saying. I mean, here's uh, Jay Monahan. This is the PGA tour commissioner answering questions about this. This is just the last, I think this was at the RBC Canadian open just this past weekend. Let's roll it. And I think you'd have to be living under a rock to not know that there are significant implications. And as it relates to the families of 9-11, I have two families that are close to me that lost loved ones. And so my heart goes out to them. And I would ask, you know, any player that has left or any player that would ever consider leaving, have you ever had to apologize for being a member of the PGA Tour? It's a pretty powerful question. Is this permanent? 
reputational damage? And, and if so, does it even matter to these golfers, do you think? I don't think it matters to them at all, mm. right? Like Phil Mickelson's in his late 40s. Like he's made an awful lot of money. He'll make an awful lot more money. He's gambled away a fair amount of that previous money. So this is probably security for him. I mean, there are Phil Mickelson's been quoted, I believe it was by Alan Shipnuck, formerly of Sports Illustrated, as saying the Saudis were scary MFers, right? And that he was worried about the Khashoggi assassination, worried about the human rights stuff. But money talked. Money is talking with Greg Norman. Like Greg Norman has found a ticket to a huge amount of money late in life to kind of run this thing. And he's watched journalists get muscled out of events and he's watched the questions flow in. And he just keeps saying, we're going to be here for decades, that there are billions of dollars that are going to be allocated to this. Um, Now, will it last is an interesting question. The stomach of how much money they will spend versus return, we don't know that yet. Um, But if the Saudis decide, this is the Saudi sovereign wealth fund that's basically funding this. If the Saudis decide they want to go all in on this, eventually they will pull more and more golfers away. They will, because what's, what's currently keeping golfers on the PGA Tour? It is the idea of playing against the best on the best tour in the world with the most prestige, with a reasonable amount of money, and there is a mystique to it, right? Like, but you can play in majors if, you're, if you have enough uh, qualification ability um, and still play on the live tour. Uh, what about the Ryder Cup? Will they be able to play in the Ryder Cup? Because that's not a PGA Tour event. Um, there's all these things about golf. Golf is, is fairly vulnerable to this because it's a bunch of independent contractors who don't make that much money. Not all of them do. And now the Saudis are saying, if you're late in your career, we will take care of you. You will make so much money, you'll never have to think about anything again. And I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if after an initial burst, the live tour cuts down on media access. So stuff like this doesn't happen. It only happens at PGA events. Well, they're already but pulling. They, again, report. Yeah, they're already pulling reporters out of news conferences. Well, it's the Saudis, right? Like, and that's kind of you can make an argument that the United States has a huge amount of moral problems and is probably going to have more and is not exactly a perfect actor when it comes to human rights. But there's a quantifiable difference when it comes to Russia, to China, to Saudi Arabia and so forth. And so that's why when you had the Beijing Olympics, for example, um, that was deeply troubling from a human rights perspective, as were the Sochi Olympics in 2014. And what were the common threads between the two Chinese Olympics, 2008 and 2022, and the Russian Olympics? They spent way more money than any Western nation or any nation anywhere else on earth has spent on an Olympics. I think China in 2008 was $45 billion dollars. Uh, Russia in 2014 with 51 billion. And this Olympics, I can't remember the number, but it was a huge amount of money that China spent on this because it could. And so when you have an autocratic regime that is not answerable to the people, uh, to its citizens, to even a media infrastructure, because those don't exist in these countries, then what you get is the ability to outspend the West. And so it's really interesting. What if the Saudis decide to launch a basketball league? Right. What if they decide to launch a hockey league? Imagine if the Saudis came to hockey players and said, your minimum annual salary will be five million. The ceiling will be 40 million. Yeah. Right. And if they gave that enough time, it's possible we could be looking at the Saudi National Hockey League because the amount of money there outstrips the market forces here. Well, and let's be honest, Bruce, uh, Bruce Arthur, our guest, obviously, if uh, if if the hypothetical Saudi International Hockey League uh, 
uh, offers Connor McDavid 45 million US a year, offers Austin Matthews 44.9 uh, million dollars a year it brings over young stars like Clayton Keller and they get Andre Vasilevsky and they've got Cole uh, Kel McCarr they're skating mm-hmm. then the fans are going to follow right I mean like do sports fans seem to have relatively short memories when it comes to certain things anyway and you have to wonder that once this initial controversy dies down and a league settles in regardless of sport if the biggest stars are there the most fans are going to follow correct things normalize, right? Like people, the, the difference that golf has over hockey in my hypothetical example is that golf is much more of a global sport, right? It, it has much more, it, it, it transports much better than hockey does on a global marketing level. But like, if you look at what's happening, not just in golf, but the Saudi sovereign wealth fund just bought Newcastle United, right? Dubai owns Paris Saint-Germain. They've bought huge European soccer teams and are spending unbelievable amounts of money in some cases. Uh, because it is a way to launder their own reputations. And are fans of Newcastle United rebelling against the fact that the Saudis own their team? Probably not. Now, it doesn't seem like it. Mm. doesn't seem like Paris Saint-Germain that's happening. You, it, it normalizes. And there is also a disconnect between most people and the ultra-rich anyway. How much sympathy do you have for the British or American or Italian billionaire who buys your team versus the so- Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund? How much does that actually impact your life? Sports fans cheer for the laundry and they cheer for the sport. And wherever that sport goes, we in North America view this from a North American perspective because it's always happened here, right? In Canada, we lost a huge amount of influence in hockey to the Americans because they have more cities, more money. There are more teams there exponentially. So, um, and that's just how hockey's gone and it's fine. Canadians aren't mad about that because we only have seven Canadian hockey teams. Um, but if that, if those teams started to migrate to China, would people still watch hockey if it was time zone appropriate and you had hockey night in Beijing and it had the same announcers and commenters and all of that? Well, we could probably use the KHL as an example, right? I mean, if the KHL were to bring over the youngest North American superstars, I wonder how many people would tack on the extra channels on their cable package, regardless of whatever Vladimir. I mean, it's not necessary. I'm, I'm sort of apples and oranges on this one. I want to stop myself before I start comparing directly. Um, it's not as though Vladimir Putin or the state of Russia, so to speak, owns the hockey league, but it's the origin there. I mean, there's a lot of people, you know, for example, right now voting with their wallets, Bruce, right? Like they're not drinking Russian vodka as an example, based yeah. on what's going on in Ukraine. I wonder what would happen if the KHL were to bring over some of the youngest North American stars. I don't know if the fans would follow. They probably would. Well, and that's the thing is people don't watch the KHL because it's not good enough, right? Yeah. Like beyond everything else, all the inconveniences, that's not where the best talent is. There is no question the best talent in the world is in the National Hockey League. There's no question, same thing with the National Football League, with the NBA, with Major League Baseball. What's happening here in golf is that the best talent, most of it, is still in the PGA. But Live Golf's only been doing this for 25 minutes, right? Yeah. Like the, what happens in a year? In two years, that's where the question of how much, how far down the road are the Saudis willing to go on something which, again, I'm not sure will sell in the early days. I think this is a lost leader when it comes to trying to create something. But if they have a long term commitment, then you could see an awful lot of golf talent going to the Saudis because it's just where the money is. Yeah. And golf follows the money almost as much as any sport. It has to be a loss leader, right? It feels like sort of like David Beckham going to L.A. or whatever to play in the MLS. I don't know, like it's sort of in the twilight of his career, although it did a lot to kickstart interest in that 
uh, North American Pro League. Let's take a look at what some of the pro golfers are saying. I mean, just actually, by the way, a remarkable finish to the RBC Canadian yeah. Open. And among those competitors, uh, Justin Thomas, who said, what a week. That's why we play, and that's why we play on the PGA Tour. Uh, he says, going to battle against one of the best today. Uh, got outdueled, uh, but not without a fight. He says, congrats to Rory McIlroy on his 21st, with a winking emoji, his 21st win and an amazing finish, says, uh, I can't wait for the U.S. Open. And then here was Rory McIlroy, who defends his uh, RBC Canadian Open championship. Uh, for background, for those of you that don't know, Greg Norman, who's now the CEO of Live Golf, Greg Norman in the 80s and 90s, more than 300 weeks as the world number one. That's a hell of a run. Now he's running this Saudi tour. 20 career PGA victories. And when Rory McIlroy hit 21 over the weekend, here's what he had to say. It's incredible. Uh, you know, playing with Tony and JT today, two of the top players in the world. And I'm, all of us playing the way we did. I mean, I think the worst score of the group was, whatever, six under par. Um, yeah, this is the day I'll remember for a long, long time. Uh, 21st PGA Tour win. Uh, one more than someone else. Uh, that gave me a little bit of extra incentive today, and um, happy to get it done. We have seen the hashtag was spreading, Bruce. One more than someone else. There, there's loyalty with the players on the PGA too. Well, it's funny. It's a battle for the soul of a game that, in terms of morals, isn't really a soul game, right? Like golf is very much a transactional game. But the fact that some guys really still believe in this, like Rory McIlroy and Justin Thomas and guys like that. That's incredibly important for the PGA Tour. Because the, the, right now, again, their best selling point is the mystique, is the history, is the competition. And the question is, how long does that last? And, because right now, the Saudi Golf Tour is like, it's a freak show, right? Like, it's, it's a collection of, of kind of some of the better golfers in the world, but it's not real golf as we have known it. It's going to be weird. Um, but again, over time, if the Saudi sovereign wealth fund decides to spend more money and more money and more money, you could see the PGA tour becoming the second best golf tour on earth. And what does that mean on a bigger scale? That's where it gets really interesting is that a lot of people use sports. A lot of nations use sports in order to better their own international image. And if the Saudis succeed in doing this, then you could see other nations doing the same, right? Um, there will be more and more creep when it comes to this. Now, what, one thing with the IOC, for example, the IOC just had a Russian Olympics and a Chinese Olympics. Both were profoundly discomforting for the IOC from a moral perspective, yeah. as much as morality hits the IOC. And now the next several years, they go Paris, uh, Milan, Los Angeles. Los Angeles in 2028 is not a guaranteed moral slam dunk, by the way. If that's the end of President Trump's second revenge-filled presidency, that could get really, really uncomfortable and ugly. I hate to bring that up. 2030 is probably Sapporo, Japan, maybe Vancouver, BC. 2032 is Brisbane, Australia. The IOC has now run away from that. They have run into much safer places um, for about the next decade. Uh, now, again, the fact that the United States is seen as a safe place, that, under, that underpins this entire conversation, is that the current arc of the United States towards a less democratic, um, less tolerant, profoundly, potentially really ugly country, um, that will change these conversations. They're, they're, it's possible in our lifetime, and I hate to say this, it's possible in our, in our immediate lifetime, within the next 10 years, that, we, that Canadians would view the United States 
on a similar moral plane to Saudi Arabia. They, they could be headed there. Look at how they're treating uh, trans kids. Look at how they're treating the LGBTQ movement. Look at how they're treating people of color. More so, like there's a vicious backlash right now to the politics of tolerance. And if that continues, if that trajectory continues, the United States is where sports, professional sports as we know it lives. And that conversation could get a lot more difficult and uncomfortable as the United States heads down the path it appears to currently be taking. I didn't see you taking that line, and that's a fascinating one to think about. That's fascinating. Uh, uh, This feels like a dumbing down question. (laughs) Let me just ask you, because I asked my wife the same direct question last night. Bruce, if a Saudi-backed publisher approached you and offered you $200 U.S. dollars to take your talents to their outlet, would you? Well, it's not a direct question because like these guys make a little more. So it, the, 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 the equivalent number would be lower, right? Because I'm a journalist, not a golfer. Fair. So if they but offered like, you a like thousand percent salary increase. Yeah, life, life-changing money, right? The kind of money that takes care of your kids and your grandkids. The thing is, I'm not immune from the idea that I would like to secure the best possible future for my kids. It's the animating desire of my, like, that's my whole life, right? My whole life is basically geared towards two things taking care of my family now and in the future in an uncertain world and doing work I can feel good about. Like those are the two things that I care about pretty much more than anything. Uh, That would take this, a Saudi offer like this would take care of the first one. It wouldn't take care of the second one. Right. And if they come in, let's say they come and offer me like $10 million. Cause that's, let's say that's about the equivalent in terms of golfers versus me, Uh, maybe 20 million. Um, it would be a, I, I can't say it wouldn't be a difficult decision. I don't think I could sleep at night, right? Like it'd be the same if Rupert Murdoch came and offered me money to go be Fox News's, a Fox News journalist, yeah. right? I would say no to that, no matter what the money was. So I can't imagine that I wouldn't say no to the Saudis, no matter what the money was. Because at some point, you got to be able to sleep, man. You got to be able to feel good about yourself. And I mean, I don't have an uncomfortable life. I can I can live my life pretty happily with the with the kind of choice I'm I'm making now. And I think that's probably what I feel best about. I appreciate the the thoughtful answer. I mean it's but it's like if it's twenty five million, if it's thirty million dollars staring you in the face, it's it's tough. You know, we're so we're talking about this last night, like just over a glass of wine, and it's like uh, you know, she's she goes, Yeah, but she says, but think of you know, she's my wife. She's the optimist. She gives people the benefit of the doubt. And she says, well, think of like maybe, I don't know, Phil Mickelson's thinking of like establishing scholarships or he could build a women's shelter with that money. Or And, and then I'm sitting there going, yeah, but if you're the charity, do you want the money? Right. Like if blood money is the concern and the blood money is channeling through a PGA star, I don't know. Anyway, here's why I ask you the question. Bruce, uh, you might be interested to see. We posted a, an unofficial, unscientific Twitter poll. We're closing in on a thousand respondents here. I encourage people to check it out. You can follow me at Ryan Jesperson. Follow Bruce at Bruce underscore Arthur. If you were a pro golfer and the Saudi-backed Live Tour offered you $200 million to defect from the PGA, would you sign on the dotted line? So far, 61% of people say, hell yeah, $200 million. 26% of respondents say, hell no, on principle. And about 13% are wrestling with it right now. So I, I don't know if I'm surprised that those numbers are not. $200 million is, is an, an insane amount of money, right? You don't have to worry about material issues ever again. And if you do decide to do like what your wife mentioned, 
If you decide to redirect that towards good causes, then you could probably do a lot of good. But the fund, it, it, it's probable that almost everybody has a price, right? Um, especially again, as we're looking at a world which is becoming more difficult, more uncertain. I, I personally think we're headed for, for a really dark period in human history, not the first one, but a really dark one between climate change and the, the way politics is going, the economies, COVID, everything. Um, and that would allow you to secure yourself against that, right? Um, but again, I just think that it's easy to say yes to money. And I don't begrudge people for doing it necessarily if they really need it. But I'm in a position, again, where I'm privileged enough that I could say no <clears throat> and have a pretty decent life going forward. Um, but what the Saudis are counting on is that these guys can be bought. And so far, a lot of them can't. Like what, what's kind of crazy to me, and this is just like a side, not even a moral topic. I'm kind of amazed that that's what it took to get these guys. I can't believe that they couldn't have gotten Phil Mickelson for less than $200 million. Mm. You're telling me Phil wouldn't have come for $100 million? Like the Saudis are bidding against themselves. This seems beyond anything, like just bad business. Like one thing, I used to work at the National Post and the National Post's politics, especially now, do not align with my personal politics on a lot of things. I think they become more irresponsible over time. But I worked for the National Post and I, I was happy to work there. But like... <sighs> They had a bad business plan, like under Conrad Black. They were supposed to lose like 150 million over five years and they lost 200 million over three and had to cut the paper and become a different thing, right? Like the Saudis have a lot of money in the bank, but if they're spending $500 million on players to start, they'd better have very deep pockets and very significant resources to keep doing this because they're not going to give 200 million to everybody, by the way. So your Twitter poll should probably be what if they gave you five, yeah, 10, 15, sure. 20? Because that's what a lot of these guys are getting. Like Lee Westwood's not getting $200 million. But the fact that these guys are getting the money they have, this is a bad business plan that the Saudis are pursuing. So let's see how that goes. Yeah. I mean, on one hand, I, I know that I'm just sort of taking this back to the starting block here, but I, I just think like 200 million is one thing and you can't write off the, the life changing. It, it's interesting, right? Because if you're Phil Mickelson, it, it, Phil's not had to like look under the couch cushions for change since he was probably 12 years old. Um, so, so he's already had life changing money. Now he's got like sort of generational obscene amounts of wealth. But at the same time, like we heard Bruce right off the top of that question from Christine Brennan, like nine 11 families, like bereaved families are looking to him as the face of disrespect. I mean, essentially teeing off on their loved one's grave. Right. And then you sort of got to go like you did, you know, I mean, how do you even sleep? And and at what point does the amount of money become totally irrelevant? Uh, listen, you're I know you're you're like on your vacation. You're at your cottage, at least. And we so <laughs> appreciate your time. One of the things I love about following you on Twitter, one of the things I love about reading what you write is that you're you're just as fluent uh, talking politics and, and matters of national and international pr prominence outside of the sports arena as you are talking sports. And one of the big things that we've been keeping an eye on lately, because it's hard to ignore, uh, is uh, Bitcoin's price plummet. Uh, and if you take a look here, I mean, this is over six months. Bitcoin this morning, this is the first time in a long time that it's been trading below 30,000 Canadian. It represents about a 53% drop in value over the past six months. Uh, one prominent conservative Canadian politician, Pierre Polyev, has called it essentially protection against inflation. And it's kind of blown up in his face. And a lot of his political opponents and pundits are 
quite frankly, weaponizing it against him right now, saying it's a pretty tough look for him as his campaign talks less and less about cryptocurrency. One of Alberta's ministers, Doug Schweitzer, also talked about cryptocurrency as potentially an area where Alberta could be a leader across the country right now. I know that you're paying attention to this storyline. How are you wrapping your mind around it? What's fair criticism? What's relevant? And what do you think people should be focusing on? Okay, so setting aside the value of cryptocurrency as an idea, and the, and, the, and the jury is way out on whether it is. Yeah. Like, this is a space which is essentially unregulated financial activity, which is a haven for scammers, criminals, uh, rubes. Like, there was a great quote from James McLeod, who used to work for the, the National Post on this. Like, this is, this, is a, this is a libertarian idea, which is largely based on, it's, it's kind of a Ponzi scheme to a degree. Um, now, when Pierre Poilievre said that, um, where he said to people who believe in him, you should invest in Bitcoin as a hedge against inflation. What is he doing? He's taking a real political issue, which is inflation, which is affecting Canadian families across the country, which is a huge source of anxiety. And he is plugging it into something which I can only presume that there's a political and a personal aspect here. The political is that there are a lot of young men who are disaffected with, uh, with how things are going in the world. And some of them are into Bitcoin. Um, but it's so profoundly irresponsible. It's almost unbelievably irresponsible. Pierre Poilievre, by his own admission, which a little bit errantly, says he's running to be prime minister of the country. He's running to be leader of the party, but he wants to be prime minister, and he very well could be. And this is a guy who just cost the people who believe in him how much money? Bitcoin overall, I think, I can't remember how far along it was, was a $3 trillion market. It's now $1 trillion. That money's gone. People's lives have been ruined. If you go into cryptocurrency message boards, there's talk of suicide lines, right? Hotlines, right? During this crash, people have lost everything. This should be disqualifying for any politician on any side of the aisle. If you do stuff like the president of El Salvador and convert your economy to Bitcoin, that's insane. If you say you should invest in Bitcoin as a hedge against inflation, which only makes sense if Bitcoin will go up forever and you'll just have more money to deal with inflation. Even that is just bad investment advice. And I can take bad investment advice from all the people who are giving it, Matt Damon in the commercials and all of that. I can deal with that. Politicians should be held to a much higher standard. And if Pierre Poilievre is so weak-minded or craven or cynical that he can be red-pilled by watching YouTube videos and then preach that to his followers, that he does not understand economic theory or the ramifications of advising this, if he'll just say whatever comes into his mind based on what is the hot conservative dogma of the moment, I cannot even express how damaging this man could be to the country as the prime minister. Like, and I, I don't want to make too big a deal of this, but think about this. This is a highly, at the, at, in the best case, a highly speculative asset that you just hawked to your followers as a solution, an easy one, versus complex global problems. It's the exact opposite of what we need from politicians. And honestly, it's so distressing because it's not just him that's done it. There were two senators in, in New York State, I believe. Um, one was a Democrat, one a Republican, who said that people should invest uh, their retirement savings into Bitcoin. That's almost, that should be almost criminal from a, from a political perspective. And we're, we're kind of sleepwalking into this because probably ever is probably gonna win the leadership because he understands the conservative base 
and their desire for simple solutions to complex problems and for enemies and for salvation, all this stuff, better than his rivals do. Yeah. And that is so dangerous right now because this liberal government seems like it's just, it's punching itself in the stomach over and over. As like, they're getting to a point where they feel tired and exhausted, right? Yeah. Like the Melanie Jolie thing, all this other stuff. If Pierre Poilievre is prime minister in 2025 and he hasn't significantly matured politically, he could drag this country in a direction that would be, I don't want to say irreparable because things can be fixed, but he would do an enormous amount of damage to things we care about in this country. Well, and and sort of like bigger picture and zooming this out, what you're talking about, the general sort of the theme or the tone of the campaign, nobody's going to question his savviness. Nobody's going to mm-hmm. question his ability to, I saw somebody marveling over the weekend. They said, look at this, um, Oh, Bruce, do you remember what movie it is? It's like uh, um, uh, Tim Robbins is in it and it starts. It's, is it called The Producer or something? It starts with like an 11 second or an 11 minute uninterrupted oh. steady shot. Do you know that film I'm talking about? I'm trying to remember. And I, I, not, I, I can't remember. It's but not the Hudsucker proxy. It's um, something like in that era. And it's anyway, in that era, though. But I remember people talking about like that. That is remarkable filmmaking to do an 11 minute steady cam shot without edits. And so people are saying, well, Pierre Polyev's doing the same thing from Canadian airports. Look at this three and a half minutes uninterrupted. He's a man of the people. He can articulate. Look at him. Millions of views. 311,000 memberships sold. And I'm sitting there going like, he's very good. And Jenny Byrne and his team are very good at taking things like people's perception. No, it's, it's people's reality. But let me just say people's people's understanding that they are priced out of the housing market. People's understanding that the, and, and people's reality that their household costs are on the rise and they're tightening their belts and there's anger and they want to channel it somewhere. Uh, people's thoughts on this, that or the other. And, and he taps on that and he picks that subject for the week or what have you. And then does does an amazing job in getting people whipped up about it. But really, if you actually look at it. If you actually dig into it, there, there's no solutions baked in anywhere. It's easy to start saying, I'm going to blow this up or, or I'm going to fire this person or I'm going to quit that or start this. But but at the same time, with regards to the serious solutions that, that a, 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 a federal economy, an international economy requires, I'm not sure he's got the tools. And that's the part that concerns me. It's not just like this issue or that issue. It's the whole M.O. It's There's a recklessness to it. Um, there's a deep recklessness to it. Like the idea that, well, I'm going to fire the head of the Bank of Canada because we have inflation. And he misdiagnoses the reasons for inflation and doing this over and over and over and over and over. Um, That's just, that's not how problems get solved, right? Like uh, it it just isn't. Um, When you look at how Poilievre does this, again, he's, he's good at being a poster. And you, you see this actually with a lot of uh, figures in the American conservative sphere. Like, take a look at Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz is on Twitter all the time, right? And, try, and he kind of, in a performative, outraged sense, all the time. That might be the closest analog to the way Poilievre markets himself. But he's done this forever. Do you remember he did a video about the price of lumber? And he misdiagnosed why the price of lumber was what it was and did this whole spiel about how this is, this is hurting Canadians. And, and I'm going to change it and I'm going to fix it. And guess what? The price of lumber changed. He deleted the video. Mm. Um, it, is, it is of the moment outrage farming because the conservative base, every, every political base responds to emotional appeals. Of course they do. But the conservative base in this country is mirroring the conservative base in the United States is that it wants more and more red meat. It wants more and more emotional outrage farming, right? It wants people to blame. It wants kind of it wants to 
redefine the sense of reality in the world. That's where you get the PPC. That's where you get the little fringe parties that drew out of the pandemic in Ontario. It's where you get where the UCP has gone in Alberta. That's where you get where the Conservative Party is going nationally. Remember, a huge part of why Pierre Poilievre is in the lead here is not just because of the way he communicates. This is a guy who embraced the convoy when it came to Ottawa. I think that's a clarifying moment, honestly, uh, because as time goes on, we forget what that was. We forget how insane the leaders of those were, like the sovereign citizen stuff, the wanting to topple the government stuff, the opposition to not just vaccine mandates, but to vaccines themselves. I went to some of those. I went to the rally before they went to Ottawa. I went to uh, up in Vaughan. There was a huge amount of anti-vaccine sentiment in that crowd. That is a really motivated constituency. And that's the kind of people that Pierre Poilievre is harnessing. But he has an enormous amount of the conservative base in his pocket because of this. And I'm not saying that the liberals are fantastic. I'm not saying that the liberals are always honest. I'm not saying that the liberals are the best government that we could ever hope for. I, I think these guys make a huge amount of number of mistakes. And I think they're misdiagnosing the moment right now when it comes to economic anxiety in Canada. And that said, I think the conservatives, again, offer Facebook meme solutions to real world problems. And nobody grasps that better than Poilie ever does. And that's why if you look at the way he communicates and look at how a lot of American uh, politicians communicate, not just American, you can see this in other places, the phenomenon of the attention economy of celebrity in, in politics is not new, but Poilie ever weaponizes it in what is admittedly a really smart way, but also, again, a way that is incredibly reckless. And the problem you get with that is it lowers the standards of politics, lowers the standards of ideas, of solutions. It's possible that government can't do a lot in this country. The way federalism is set up, the way that the talent infrastructure is, there's bad incentives to go into politics in this country, not just in terms of politicians, but in terms of uh, the staff behind them. Um, We need a better political class in this country in pretty much every way in every party. But the conservatives, I would say, are on a trajectory right now where they are mirroring what is happening in the United States. They are several years behind, but they are headed down that road. And Poilie ever grasps that. And that's why he's likely to be the next leader of the conservative party. Uh, Audience member Mark Hope, Bruce, who's watching us live on YouTube right now, gets two points uh, to be added to our scoreboard. John, make sure we add those to the player. Two points. The player uh, correctly identified. Yes. Well, if you knew it, it, why didn't you speak up? There was a riveting conversation. I didn't want to jump in. Oh, you didn't want to interrupt. All right. Well, it's Mark Hope who's going to get the two points today. He says the Tim Robbins movie was the player, though probably not as memorable for people who didn't go to film school. (laughs) Mark, Bruce, we've interrupted your cottage time uh, and we're going to let you get back to that. But it's always such a pleasure to have you here on the show. Your perspective uh, means a lot to us and we thank you. Ryan, I appreciate the work we do with the show. Always a pleasure to be on. Thanks. You can read Bruce Arthur's work in the Toronto Star. Senior columnist there, of course, his contributions to TSN, TSN Radio as well. And give him a follow along with about 150,000 other people on Twitter at Bruce <laughs> underscore Arthur. 200 million. Eh? Yeah, there you go. 200 mil. I want to get to some of the comments uh, from what our, our Twitter crew, uh, yeah. what those that are following us on, on the Real Talk Twitter account, what they had to say. Like some people just vote, which is cool. Uh, you know, like closing in on a thousand votes there. Would you go to the Saudi back tour for 200 mil? Uh, but then some people have left their comments as well would you 200 million dollars there's not much like okay if if you wouldn't take 200 million dollars you're already a millionaire unless i mean i wouldn't do horrible things to people but if i'm going to do something i love 
I don't think you could talk me out of not taking $200 million. So you're saying you wouldn't do, and now I'm just being devil's advocate, but you're saying you wouldn't do horrible things to people for $200 million. Good to know. But I'd take... But I, you would I mean, take $200 million be, from people hard. that do do horrible things to people. It would be hard for anyone who's not already a millionaire already to not say yes to life-changing money like Bruce said, for not only you, but your f- generations of your family. We'll put I it just, this way. I just think I just think it's it's like he said, I think everyone has a price. If it was like, you know, if it came with doing horrible things, but like it, <laughs> you trace back money to anywhere, if it's lots of it, it's most likely coming from somewhere bad. I mean, let's be honest. Millions and millions and millions of dollars. The, the origin of most of it, if you trace it back, is coming from... I don't want to say horrible places, but it's coming from people or corporations or entities that gained that money through the suffering of other people. Let's be honest. Almost all intrinsic, almost all wealth, if you trace it back far enough, is somebody's done something to someone wrong, right? So, yeah, you could. You could. Uh, is you that could, not you could, true? You could, well, you could make the argument that a lot of people that have made a lot of money have made it on the backs of other people. For uh, that's, sure. that's what I'm saying. Hundred percent. So no, I, I think mean, you know what I mean. Not everybody, but a lot of people for sure. Let's get to these comments. I just took a look at the clock and I'm going, oh my gosh, these shows are going. But we got a lot to talk about. We're hanging out. It's raining it's your outside. Show. Just, you can go to eleven. We can do whatever want. we want, man. We'll start five minutes from now. We just start hitting the vape, and then we go into overtime, and then we get really talkative. I better get this out of the way first before I forget my assignment. St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. They're going to be in attendance at the inaugural Real Talk Golf Classic next Thursday, June 23rd at the ranch. Why? Because they got to bring the Jeep. They got to bring the Jeep that we're going to give away to whoever nails that hole in one. They're actually going to be parked on my favorite hole on the entire course. A beautiful elevated tee box par three. It's about a depending on where the tee box is at. It's like 145 yards. Nice shot. Maybe eight iron. I don't know. Maybe you're nine iron. If you're big, who knows? Anyway, the point is St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge is going to be there with a Jeep. We're thrilled to have them there. If you check out their websites, you can link to them through our sponsors tab or, for example, go directly to stalbertdodge.com. You go to shopping tools and then check this out. I'm showing you my screen right now. You can build and price the exact vehicle you want, custom built to your preferences, whether it's the Grand Caravan minivan, might be the Chrysler 300. That's a nice popular ride. Of course, you can do the same with Ram trucks and anything through the Jeep lineup, including that Wrangler 4xe, that electric Jeep Wrangler. Absolutely love that stuff. Find them online through the Sponsors tab on our website. Our friends at Local Environmental want to remind you, tis the season for summer festivals. And if you're looking on the organizing front to do something special in your community, think local with Local Environmental. Fencing, portable toilets, water hauling, garbage and recycling services, Bins. Maybe you're doing a reno project, a spring cleaning, whatever it is. Local has you covered at localenvironmental.ca. Trash Talk coming up on Friday as we wrap up our show. And our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, I think we've made it very clear they're going to be at the Real Talk Golf Classic. <sighs> Dilly Bar Shooters. I am afraid. From our friends at the Dairy Queens of Palisades, Nomeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. I've already told them to keep an eye on you. I said we need our DJ focused. I'm going to go with a three. A three, three dilly bar shot maximum. Three double dilly bar shooter max. Oh, you're going double shots now. Oh, of course. The, so three times. So six. You got a double dill. You got a double dilly. <laughs> and if you are double dillying, you want to do it in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. We love our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. 
It's Tuesday, which means our friends at Leading Edge Physio give us an opportunity every single week to focus on a person, an organization, a group that's impacting positive change in their community. We call it the Leading Edge. And on the Leading Edge this week, this is really remarkable, and we're especially excited because it's happening in our own backyard. It's the new Indigenous Peoples Experience at Fort Edmonton Park. Check this out. It's just been recognized internationally with a Thea Award for celebrating outstanding work on educational, historical, and entertainment projects. The Indigenous Peoples Experience is a -a one-of-a-kind immersive experience that engages guests in Indigenous customs, traditions, and highlights the inspirational stories of First Nations and Métis people who have resided on these lands for hundreds and thousands of years. Now, this opportunity to uplift Indigenous communities comes at a critical time in Canada's reconciliation with Indigenous people, the first exhibit of its kind anywhere in the country. Now, how did it come about? Well, conversations with more than 50 Indigenous elders and historians, educators, community members informed the content that's shared at the exhibit and the stories, the artwork comes directly from Indigenous perspectives from over 40 local First Nations. A lot of historical documents, research on display. It's almost impossible to not learn something, including the music there, written and composed by local award-winning Indigenous musicians and performance through an artist residency. How cool is that? Local Indigenous interpreters greet guests and impart their own personal stories and history, adding unique depth to the experience. The Indigenous Peoples Experience at Fort Edmonton Park is now open to the public for the 2022 season. And this week on Real Talk, it is on The Leading Edge. Leading Edge is presented every Tuesday here on the show by Leading Edge Physiotherapy. Life shouldn't hurt. Before we go, I promised I was going to read a few of the comments that people left on our unofficial, unscientific Twitter poll. And, and here it is. If you're a pro golfer and the Saudi-backed Live Tour offers you $200 million, like they did, allegedly, that's the report to Phil Mickelson. By the way, he's gone on the record. He says, I believe contracts should be private. So he's not conv- – although, what's he going to say? <laughs> what's he going to say? We asked, would you sign on the dotted line? And here are what some of you had to say. I love this from Dooley, who says, I think the focus on the players is ridiculous. We're ridiculing the players that are taking contracts in the millions while our governments are the ones supplying weapons to the owners for billions. I agree with that, too. 100% true. Like, you dangle $200 million in front of someone. Are they bad for wanting to take care of their family? Well, our federal it's government. The, the supply, where that money comes from, or you know what I mean? Or Dooley's talking about the fact that our federal government sells light-armored vehicles, LAVs, to the Saudis. I know. That are used in Yemen and other parts of the world. Like, and we buy their oil. How do we sleep yeah. at night? Luke Fevin, a good friend of the show, quotes Shakespeare from Hamlet. Tis e'en so, the hand of little employment hath the daintier sense. I liked it on Twitter, and then I went and Googled it to find out what the hell that means. Uh, Nostra Fartface says, if I'm the quality of player they're offering that big piece of cake to, I'm already wealthy enough, and I ain't morally bankrupt. Yeah. So that's a big no from Nostra Fartface. Donna says, my predictions for live golf, it will fail. It's not competitive. The Saudis have lured the weak, the addicted, and the troubled. Ooh. Says there's no coming back from this. Jay Monahan, commissioner of the PGA Tour, has made this clear, and she says, beware of bone saws. Donna saying what she means. And Ryan Tunnell says, 200 million, sign me up. He says what Bruce said as well. That's almost double what Tiger's made in on-course earnings his entire career. I mean, it's not like sign me up, like, woo. It's like it's like Bruce, Bruce said. 
you're going to grapple with some things. You're going to come to this decision and you're going to be like, okay, I'm this old. I'll be gone in this many years. This money will be around for my family for this many years. That's the grappling. I think people would have with it is like, you're going to think about your family first. And the other thing is when you put on the post, you said 200 million for playing golf. I would just say for, for what you love to do for whatever somebody offered me, $10 Ten million dollars to DJ somewhere, or to you know, technically, if somebody offered you for a TV show, ten million dollars to DJ at, I mean, I know he's dead, but at Osama bin Laden's family wedding. <laughs> okay, ten that, million. That's no, different. No, how is it different? Because this that is literally the exact. That's the exact thing. These are nine eleven families saying, "What the fuck." Right? Yeah. If someone offered you ten million to DJ Osama bin Laden's Probably daughter's not. wedding, Probably not. Ten million. Probably not. It would kill the rest of your career. Probably not. Like Carrie said not. to me, Carrie said, what, Carrie said, what if they offered you a $5 million advertising contract on Real Talk? I said, well, number one, we'd probably lose all our other sponsors. Yeah. Uh, and number two, the, the longer term, right? The yeah. longer term implications of this, like you have to take a look at cost, yeah. not just not just price, but cost. Ultimately, coming up on tomorrow's show, we're going to check in with the latest. I mean, unless something's happened in the last half hour, while well, we haven't really been paying attention, the latest entrance uh, into the United Conservative Party's leadership race. She's walked out of her minister's office and declared herself a contender. Rajan Sani will join us here live on the show. You're not going to want to miss that on Wednesday's Real Talk. Plus, coming up a little bit later on in this week we're going to take on some of the other big stories that are making news including a group of BIPOC outdoor enthusiasts really neat development we'll see you soon Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson executive producer Josh Dunford technical producer John Hicks General Manager, Katie Cook-Shivers. Account Coordinator, Lawrence Derlego. Human Resources, Lena Shepard. Website Design, Mike Johnston. VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Ann Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is reported in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.